Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry, and today we're visiting with the author of Honor Thy Label, Garo Lazon. Hi, Garo. Hey, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. How are you today? <clears throat> A little sick, but it's not COVID. Okay, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Gerald Lezon, in addition to being the author of Honor Thy Label, is Vice President of Special Operations at Dr. Bronner's. Since 2005, he has managed Dr. Bronner's shift to sourcing its main ingredients from organic and fair to trade projects. These ingredients are coconut, palm, olive, several essential oils, sugar, alcohol, and now cocoa beans. Gero's special operations team of eight has built and operates several integrated farming and processing projects with local partner teams. These involve hundreds to thousands of smallholder farmers processing operations with two to 300 people and staff and significant social impact through hands-on engagement in education, healthcare, and infrastructure development. The special ops team also works closely with and purchases from other projects not owned by Dr. Bronner's such as Canaan Palestine in the West Bank. In recent years, all projects are emphasizing the shift to regenerative agriculture to improve soil productivity, resilience, and carbon sequestration. Born in Cologne, Germany, Garrow has a master's degree in physics from the University of Cologne and a doctorate in environmental science and engineering from UCLA. Before working for Dr. Bronner's, he worked as an environmental consultant to U.S. industry in the development and industrial hemp and in international development. When not traveling, he lives in Berkeley, California. Now, Garrow, I know this last little bit about you not traveling. Uh, you do a, a heck of a lot of traveling, it seems. Um, just the process of coordinating our interview together uh, required several weeks as you were I think abroad visiting some of your projects. And I thought I would just dive right in by asking you, you know, what is it that, that has you traveling so much and connecting with communities all around the world? And, and how is that approach, which you're spearheading for Dr. Bronner's different uh, from how many of the other more uh, mainstream uh, industrial companies are, are, are doing things with regard to their supply chains? I, you, you hit it. Right on the head, Aaron. How, how do we differentiate ourselves from companies that simply, and it's not that simple, simply buy organic and fair trade ingredients where available? And that takes us back a little bit to the, the story, really, of, of our work on our supply chain. So my bosses, the, um, the grandsons of the company founder, Emmanuel Brauner, when they took over in around 2000, it was clear they wanted to continue his vision, his vision being cleaning up the world with soap. Honestly, he was, Emmanuel was driven enough to think that that's his responsibility as an entrepreneur. Now his sons have more, have more improved technical means at their hands, like there's things such as the internet. And by then they also had a little more sales and they had their mom. Um, to help them run the company on the financial side. 
And the question then came up, where do our ingredients come from? In 2003, they said, oh, let's shift to organic. That seems to be something that shows responsibility and you avoid farm workers in the tropics from being sprayed with pesticides. And after a year buying organic coconut oil, they realized, oh, we're just buying from a broker and we still don't know where the oil is coming from. And then David, whom I knew by then from our work in, in hemp, who he said, and, and I was working in Sri Lanka on a development project, and he said, can you look around for fair trade coconut oil? Because he thought we need something that's third-party verified. You want some sort of a certification system because he's very well aware of this tendency to, to just do label fraud or to just, to just lie and, and embellish whatever you do. So we started looking around and then we realized, well, th there's no standards. There's no fair trade standards for any of our ingredients, right? There's fair trade standards for coffee, cocoa, sugar, and not for us. And it was because there was a monopoly by the by fair trade international really on, and they, they didn't have much of, a, of an incentive to move ahead and just expand their system. So we looked around, found comparable standards, number one, and then realized there's no supply still. So we have to do this ourselves. And then crazy enough, we started building our first coconut oil factory in Sri Lanka because that's where I had been doing consulting work in, um, in, in, in Sri Lanka and had developed relationships with business people there whom I trusted, we pulled off an impromptu relief project after the tsunami hit in 2004, that was. And then David said, okay, this is great. No, let's do a coconut oil mill. And we, we actually did this. And it stands, right? It's a, it's a real factory with, I think, 250 staff and some 1,200 farmers now. And we had not the proper training to do that, but we had enough skills amongst us to do that. So that's really the difference is that we build our own operations that are vertically integrated and you need to do everything from converting farmers to organic practices, get that certified, set up the system to maintain, these are group certifications to maintain that system. You have to do the architecture, then build, and equip a factory, and then you have to run it on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's something that takes a little more engagement than just coming for a purchasing visit every, every year. And we've done this in several other locations, and that's really what's kept me traveling for the last 15 years. You do need to be on the ground to make decisions. And the, the interesting thing... And, and the same for my teammates. So I've spent half the time on the, on the run, so to speak, since 2005. Same for my teammates, a little less so. The last two years were interesting because since early 2020, we couldn't travel. It was just not feasible. And then I went back to Ghana first time in, in June. And amazingly you find that if you have good relationships with a team, Zoom is not a bad crutch at all. And I suspect that all of us, we're going to be cutting back a little bit on the number of trips. You still need the exposure on the ground. So we're there for a week. 
And that's about discussing strategies. You know, you need to look at the sort of, we bought a piece of land. You want to go see that land. Zoom just doesn't do it. But you don't need quite as much as we used to. But the relationship is being on the ground, interacting with people, interacting with their communities. They really like the, the farming communities when we show up and show our interest and our support of the project. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why you do want to be present. And that does set us apart from companies who usually just buy it. That, that's just very different. We sit in there and have financial discussions. We interview staff. We have to help discipline people in, in, in high-end cases as well. So that just requires personal presence. And that's, that's why we're on the ground. One of the things that, that really jumped out at me when I was reading the book, and I'll just show uh, the cover here for folks who are uh, looking at the video version of our discussion. Really a beautiful cover and, and wonderful uh, way of storytelling, uh, describing many of your experiences as you're also conveying many of the principles and practices um, that you and your team uh, use. But one of the things that really jumped out at me is how important it is to have those uh, relationships with those community leaders on the ground and, and business leaders on the ground. It seems that that's the, really the, the link in the in the global chain that uh, when it's strong probably means a lot of good things are happening. And, and perhaps when it's not you know, going so well, it, it could really cause trouble throughout the entire uh, or organization. It's, this is one of the, the key challenges. Everyone is really to find the right people. Uh, everybody will tell you this, right? That's just well known. And we've, we've made our mistakes. There were two cases of fraud on two projects, and we ultimately had to, manage, had to let the managers go. And I, I hadn't done this before, so I had to learn. But in that process, you, you develop a better nose for who's driven by what motivations. And you, you want to pick people that, that do have a motivation that goes beyond just making money. Uh, there's nothing wrong with people wanting to make a living, but if you provide some meaning and purpose you will have not a guarantee, but your likelihood of more loyalty is important. So unlike bigger companies who may have local subsidiaries and then hire, say, the CEO and let them do things, we get very closely involved in the development of, of staff. And to, to a point that's pretty common here now is you do leadership training and um team building, all these nice terms, you have to do that on the ground. Because number one, there's succession issues. And number two, it helps on motivation that you build teams. So we've just introduced some of these more Western concepts into societies that haven't heard much of them yet. And that, I'd say, overall has had a very beneficial impact. So we just take the time to speak, to encourage our people on the ground. They're also remote, right? So you want to integrate them into what you do, give them speaking opportunities at webinars or live, for instance, right? It's the integration of people. And it's not just conferences. At conferences, right? I've been at enough conferences myself as a speaker and they're social, right? Ultimately, they don't change the world but to give people an opportunity to speak 
to like-minded about their experience just gives exposure and that I find really valuable. So it's just paying attention to the human, the psychological needs of the people on the ground is a key element of, of what we do. And it's the only way to make it fun, right? You want to be able to relate to people. You wouldn't, you don't say they're always friends, but there is a lot of laughing you know, at the irony of the world, but it's also about addressing the problems they have at hand in a realistic and constructive manner. I, I think that's a key part of our, while helping, they're younger. Many of them are in their 30s and 40s, like the leaders. And there's lots of room to support them in their personal and professional development. And we, we like doing that. Yeah, I love, I love hearing about this uh, psychological and human relationship side of the work you're doing. And one of the things I want to ask about uh, next to, to really help our audience understand the geographic range of, of what you're doing, you, you have operations in Sri Lanka and the Holy Land, both the Israeli and, and Palestinian uh, areas of the Holy Land, uh, Nigeria, Ghana, South Africa, um, and, and elsewhere, India, elsewhere. So could you give us just a quick overview of uh, the, the places and cultures and, and continents where you're doing this work and, and sort of what that means to be so, so global with such a hands-on approach? There, there's three companies that we own um, or have a majority share. That's in Sri Lanka where we make coconut oil. That was the first project. And there are 1,200 farmers, family farmers that grow coconuts. The factory that makes the oil and soon coconut milk and cream has some 250 staff. And, you know, that, that's an, I, I love, I spent a lot of time building up. This was my first project. I spent probably a total of three years or so in Sri Lanka to help set this up. Because we hadn't done this before, and I was really concerned about getting things wrong, which happens easily. And, um, and that's a culture, I guess, that's seen a lot of foreigners. You, you don't feel all that, that foreign, and, and not sure whether that's the, the question. But I'm, I, I used to travel a lot when I was younger. So we would drive as far as Iran from Germany. And so you just know, and I didn't like Germany too much. I want to say that. Right? So I, I, as soon as I could, I went to Holland. And uh, it fitting in with a local culture isn't as tricky as some people make it sound, but you, you definitely want to be sensitive to local traditions, but you also don't want to overblow it. The one thing I've learned is people are not that different. In most places, they laugh about similar jokes, if they have a sense of humor, that is. And so I like comparing them. So that's, that's Sri Lanka. I'd say they're um, the nicest um, natural smiles on the planet come from Sri Lanka. Pe mm -hmm. People do smile. And, and the silliest thing is when you ask Sri Lankans to smile for a photo. <laughs> it doesn't come out so well. Then in, in Ghana, we started in just at the same time, we started our palm oil product, right? And palm oil is a bad oil, as everybody knows. And of course, for us, it couldn't come from a large plantation that was planted on burnt down tropical forests. So this was existing smallholder agriculture on 
two to five acres a piece and then helping farmers improve the productivity, pay better prices, and then employ mostly unskilled local women. Now, this is in the, in the countryside. And there it's a little different, yes, but it's by then we had, I had gotten used to this. So you argue with people about their expectations. They think it's white people are coming and they, they want to dump. They had heard of development projects and there's the free money to be had, right? So you need to overcome yeah. those expectations that people have of you and that typically takes two to three years you want to make sure that people understand the only thing you want is you want to buy agricultural products at a fair price support farmers in the process and you want to employ people on fair and respectful terms and on top of this you put quite a bit of money into fair trade projects into local schools into the healthcare system into infrastructure into training people and th those are the settings and they're they're all different rather different but ultimately they're not india is a trip we don't own that project we used to but we closed it down for fraud but rather facilitated a few of our honest field officers to start their own projects and we're by far the largest customer and that is a project that's yet to save India. I India is, is a difficult place in, in, in many respects, right? It's, it's, it's a bit chaotic and to see a bunch of young guys wanting to take on the task of, of shifting field agriculture from what was super chemistry intensive to compost agriculture where you rebuild the humus content of the soil by making compost growing cover crops and tilling less while at the same time diversifying their rather dense um, crop that that's the task there and maybe this is a nice example so people understand our business model like we started out of course by thinking these projects will produce ingredients for us, Dr. Bronner's. But really fast, we saw that having a company with a single product and a single customer is just a really, really dumb idea. Mm. Because number one, you make that company entirely dependent upon potential fluctuations in Dr. Bronner's demands, even though we mostly go up. But this year, for instance, we had to cut back a little. Last year was fantastic. This year is slower. And you don't really want other companies to be entirely dependent on you, number one. Number two, you want these companies in Ghana and India and elsewhere, you want them to develop a relationship with other buyers. You want them to see that the world is much more complex and that there's companies other than Dr. Bronner's. And you don't want them to focus just on the single product that you yourself buy. And India is a great example for that. So the farmers there, I think we're getting close to 3,000 now. The farmers grow three crops per year. You can do that in Uttar Pradesh if you have enough water. And our mint, our mint oil is, is their cash crop, but they grow all kinds of other crops. And that's wheat and rice. And then there is a lot of medicinal herbs. So what we did is to find a customer here in the United States who's interested in regeneratively certified herbs. 
this with this this trend towards regenerative starts paying off. So this is a respected nutritional supplement company who is looking for a trustworthy Indian supplier. So we're now starting to supply Tulsi, holy basil to them. There's chamomile. And all of a sudden, there's a whole other list of herbs that can be grown where we are. And that'll help farmers diversify. They can sell products with a fair and an organic premium. Right? So that increases revenues from the field. You, ha you have to do that if you want farmers to have um, a, a better income. And it, it also connects farmers to other companies. And it's really fun for me to over the last two years and, and rock the, the regenerative organic certification that we now have on three of our four projects is to have that serve as an interest peaker that gets company come to look and see whether we might be able to produce something for them. And that's, it's really fun and it diversifies peanuts from India is something that we're now doing, you know, they grow, grow a lot of legumes. Peanut is a legume. And so we did our first container of peanuts to a great customer in, in Germany. So it's just expanding what they produce as rock, put it into export while not ignoring the local market too. So it's about diversification um, for, for business reasons and also for storytelling reasons and for, for exchange, for exposure of those projects to other customers as well. That, that's one of my, my big hobbies now is just to help establish contact. And, and mind you, those companies we don't own, we don't get a commission of it, right? So this is a service Dr. Bronis provides. My salary pays for that and, and that of um, my, my staff. It's just to facilitate business creation between our projects and customers abroad. Yeah, that, thank you for, for sharing all of that. It, it helps uh, form a picture. And uh, you, you've mentioned ROC, the Regenerative Organic Certification uh, Regime, a couple of times. And of course, we've had David Bronner and Ryan Zinn, your colleagues, on other episodes uh, talking a bit about this. But for, for our audience who maybe haven't yet uh, listened to those episodes, could you just walk us through what is this Regenerative Organic Certification and, and how was uh, Dr. Bronner's instrumental in, in helping to basically launch this in a, a community with a few other companies and organizations? Yep. So ultimately, I would say this regenerative quote movement came out of a, of a dissatisfaction with what organic agriculture does, right? And, and I, I believe many in the audience don't know exactly what organic is. Neither, neither did I when we started this whole show in 2005 and originally say in biodynamic organic agriculture, the idea was also to pay attention to the, the quality and the health of the soil. <clears throat> and it usually means just, you know, maintain a humus content bio have, have organic matter in your soil because that improves resilience that facilitates liveliness in the soil. And in many respects, organic agriculture has somewhat um, come down to being simply about not using chemicals 
And organic is more than that. And I, I didn't know this really when we started in Sri Lanka and we were lucky enough to have a pretty tough organic inspector who says, Gero, coconuts are all organic by neglect. It just means farmers don't do anything, but that's not organic to us. So you better think about what kind of soil maintenance programs you implement. And with trees, that comes down to pruning, it comes down to mulching. Then we started the production of compost. And this was in 2010. And we started doing similar things in other projects. And then around 2015, this concept of regenerative organic agriculture came up in the United States. This is a an American invention and everybody got really wild about it like this sometimes happens in, in the US if, if a new hype comes up yeah. and it was great though because we had already positioned ourselves with our projects as people who tried to practice regenerative agriculture by mulching by plowing less by, um, by making compost and then there were several groups that thought, well, we need a standard for that because otherwise everybody's going to say they're regenerative really soon. Right? There's going to be label fraud on a large scale. And that's where David Bronner partnered with Patagonia. There was the Rodale Institute and a, and a bunch of other companies to develop a standard. It's a private standard. That's been now out for two years and increasingly companies, projects apply for that standard. And it's really a combination of um, basic organic, meaning don't use pesticides, herbicides in your productions. There's animal welfare. There is fair conditions. So it integrates things such as a fair trade standard or fair for life standard to make sure that anybody employed is employed on fair conditions, payment terms, and respect. And on top of this is a focus on soil health, meaning what do people do to bring carbon dioxide back into the soil? So it depends a little bit on whether you're talking field crops or you're talking tree crops. And so regenerative organic, the rock standard that we operate under really combines the best of, I'd say, sustainable agriculture, fair trade and social responsibility and animal welfare. Those, those are the three major pillars of that. And it's, 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 it's a great concept. Um, you can add it to your existing organic and fair trade certification. It's been a little difficult the last two years because most, in, most inspection companies did only remote audits. I, right, the last two years were not so much fun to, to do inspection and certifications because you couldn't travel. So uh, pretty interesting, but that'll change. So ultimately, the ROC standard is a standard that on the highest level integrates requirements for treatment of people, treatment of animals, and treatment of the soil. And and to me, it, it's 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 got more of a visionary feel to it than just organic does because it's not just about not having pesticide residues in your food but it's about how it's grown and how does it affect the soil the people and the animals in the neighborhoods right and i i find that super inspiring to me it's ultimately also about being more productive and for farmers to make more money 
because depending on how you do it, you actually stand a chance of chance of of increasing your yields and thus your revenue. Not only by selling into an export market, but by simply producing more. Right. So it's a um, it, it's quite a concept. It sounds great. Implementing it on the ground is just not without work, yeah. and it does require money. So we do go for grants, development grants. I, I like getting them from the German government. And th there's a real interest in what we do is work directly with smallholder farm, be present and not just train, be present, engage with them, buy from them, right? That adds to that, right? It's just the exchange of goods for money or employing people and paying them a wage. That is just the, the blood of the economy. And so we're just in the middle of that. We don't just buy, we actually in, engage on, on, on different fronts. And the rock standard kind of sets the framework for that. And we, we think it's a pretty good one. Mm -hmm. and, and if folks are interested in learning more about the rock standard, um, the, do you know what, what's the organization or the URL they should go to, to, to find out more information? So as far as the standard goes, there is the ROA, the Regenerative Organic Association. I'm not sure. It's probably ROA.org. So this is here in, um, in Northern California. They describe the standard and all its aspects. More general, the Regenerative International has a website. And then you find a, a bunch of companies and the, Dr. Bronner's has a lot of coverage on our website, drbronner.com. Patagonia has now a, they have their own internet shop that sells their own regenerative products and those of other companies, including ours. And um, mind you, you know, we're, this is early days still. So, there, there's a lack of product, right? Because our coconut oil is regenerative organic, but that's a single ingredient. And it wasn't that difficult to, to launch that. So this was, I think, the first consumer product ever is our coconut oil. And we want to do the same with our soaps. Our chocolates are on their way to regenerative certification. Then there is fruits that are coming, cotton is coming, there's fish, there's grains, right? So just the universe of regenerative certified ingredients is gradually growing and it'll grow faster once there's easier access for inspectors after the pandemic is over, which I don't know exactly when that is going to be, but we'll, we'll see. So I'm, I'm, I'm so um, curious to ask you, uh, as, as an author myself, with all that you have going on um, in your role as Vice President of Special Operations at Dr. Bronner's and, and all of these different projects you're connected with, um, what compelled you to, to write a book, uh, A, and, and B, um, where did you write it? I'm curious, were you, were you writing while you were on the road or, or did you sort of take a little you know, hiatus sabbatical to write? How did that work for you? It's that the drive came, well, there, there's several. My father was a publisher, right? So I, I grew up with books. And the kind of stories I, I had over the last 20 some or even 30 years are, are 
not not so boring overall. And I, I I thought this may not be a bad idea to just represent this because I, there's many people who have had bits and pieces of that story, and I thought this should be maybe explained. And I'm a scientist, so I like explaining things. And I thought, what what better than explaining how you know mixed agroforestry works or how soap is being made? So I'm, I'm I have somewhat of a of a teacher in me. It, it was that, and then of course there's some there's some mystique around Dr. Bronner's, but not too many people really know what we do. Mm. Also, everybody knows we're great. Well, that's great, but it, it's just not very specific. And so I conspired with Ryan Fletcher, our head of PR, and he did a fantastic job in finding an agent. And then there was a. Uh, we, we found a ghostwriter to help me write the proposal, which I couldn't have done. I would have never written this book if I hadn't, if we hadn't already sold it to Penguin. And then I don't, don't, I, I don't know exactly how I did this, Aaron. This was always on the side, right? So in the evenings, mostly during the day, the write is difficult. Weekends often, when you had inspiration and write, writing is a challenge. It, the, the spirit needs to speak to you, and if the spirit doesn't speak, you can sit and chew on your pencil forever. But nothing happens. And then I was lucky. I hate to say it. Um, I think COVID saved my butt mm. because I, I had a deadline ahead of me and I still needed to write a third of the book. So this is what I did in the spring of 2020 where I was just at home and I didn't have to go anywhere. I still had to write. But writing on the road is almost impossible. It's just way too distracted. You need a space. You need at least a couple of days you need conversations with Crystal, my wife. Many ideas came up. So I, I think this was my first and last book. It's really very, very time-consuming, but I, I enjoyed it. it. It's, you know, like psychotherapy in, in a way. And I, I had this urge to just tell people all the crazy stuff you actually can do. And it's not Dr. Bronner's is. Unilever, and we've got all the resources. That's not the case. And it's not like Dr. Bonds pours millions into this. Those projects now need to stand on their own, fetch higher prices, but there's no financing of these projects or rather cash inflow into these projects, right? I, my idea is to make them self-sufficient because that's what you want. You, you want companies that can survive on their own in the marketplace and find customers that are interested in, in products like this. So all, all these, these messages I felt compelled to get out and it just struck me, but I think now I'm, I'm not going to do much of this anyway. It was really fun though. You finally get to put all your ideas on paper. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful. Well, let me remind our audience that this is the why on earth community podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry, and we're visiting with Gara Lezone, the author of Honor Thy Label and the Vice President of Special Operations at Dr. Bronner's. I'd like to take a moment to thank the many sponsors and supporters who uh, help with the work that we're doing at the Why on Earth community and, and help make this podcast series possible. And that includes Earth Coast Productions, the Lidge Family Foundation, Alpine Botanicals, Purium, Earth Hero, Liquid Trainer, Vera Herbals, Growing Spaces, Soilworks, Joyful Journey Hot Spring Spa, Earth Water Press, and yes, Dr. Bronner's. Thank you for the wonderful grant we received from you guys last year. 
uh, one for 1% for the planet and ecoversity. Uh, also a huge shout out to the many individuals and ambassadors who have joined our monthly giving program. And if you haven't yet and you'd like to join, you can go to whyonearth.org slash support and select any monthly level that works well for you. If you'd like to give at the $33 a month level, uh, we will send you a jar of the Wele Waters hemp infused aromatherapy soaking salts as a thank you and as a way to help you with your personal well-being practices. So a, a huge shout out and thanks to our wonderful friends and ecosystem of supporters. And clearly uh, that, that is uh, something that you guys at Dr. Bronner's are, are really leading the way with, Garo. And, and I am so struck that you guys, with all that you're doing in your own supply chain management and growth, you're around $100 million a year in sales, last I heard. Oh, uh, but we're, with all we're, of that, what's that? We're, we're closer to 200. No kidding. Okay. You've had <clears throat> a couple of banner years, I reckon. Um, that's good to know. Um, and, and with all of that, you also have very interesting uh, mechanisms within the company to maintain your own uh, regenerative and sustainability uh, standards and behaviors and practices. You, the executive cap is interesting. I'd like to ask you about that. And, and also the company is donating a, a substantial portion of its net profits, which is also a sizable portion of its gross revenues. Uh, on an ongoing basis. And I thought, um, Yaro, if, if you wouldn't mind speaking to those couple of points in terms of the, the commitments Dr. Bronner's has made as a company and, and how that uh, shows up both in, in the internal uh, company ecosystem, but also in this uh, broader uh, network of relationships that you guys are uh, a big part of. So I... It, it, it's complex and much of it is historical. You know, the company founder had this vision of saving the planet with soap. And that was a crazy idea, but he laid the foundation. It's really his son, Jim, and Jim's wife, Trudy, who in the 90s implemented what was then pretty radical for a mid-sized American company, which is um, full health coverage for employees. And then also... Just, just the way people were, were treated, right? This concept of a family business. And family, not, not in a corny way, but rather just, just trying to treat people like humans, which all means you get involved in, in their personal problems too. But I guess that was, that was part of it. And then as the company grew, the question came up, what are we going to do with profits? And that, I, I think, is the real radical departure from what's usually done with money and i think it explains our behavior so everybody knows when companies are profitable and they're owned <clears throat> somebody then the profit goes the, the 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 profit not needed for investments etc goes to the owners so that's different at dr Bronner's. there is no dividend being paid for people from the profits that are being being made there's other family members involved but they don't get paid anything that's based on operations so essentially there's no motivation to make more profit to enrich yourself rather that money is used 
in addition to paying taxes and, and making capital investment, that money is used exclusively on, we call it philanthropy and activism. And that is about 7% of our revenues, 7% of revenues. And that's unheard of. Good companies who think they're cool, they do 1% and 2% is pretty high. We do seven. That's a massive amount of money. And then one could say, well, that's nice not to pay dividends, but how about executive salaries? Because that's the other loophole. So our rule is five to one. Right? The highest executive salary being paid is no more than five times that of the lowest paid permanent worker in the warehouse. And that means that it's just a huge amount of money left over. And in your decisions to operate, the profitability, profitability is important. We need to make money, right? That's completely clear. We operate in capitalism and you better make some money. Otherwise, you're not going to be around. And we actually do want to grow and we want to be more profitable because that money is used to do what I believe is just a whole range of super meaningful and, and, and important um, activities. So it's really blocking the access of the owners to their money to a point where they we're thinking now of having this eventually turn into a foundation of sorts. We want to remove the aspect of, of ownership and the entitlement to profit. We want to separate these things because that's what mostly causes trouble. And I've watched this over the last few years is, is what happens if people are not primarily driven by motivation to buy a yard, you know, 10 new cars or build a mansion or whatnot, they behave differently. And to me, the Brawners are just the prime example. I know them well, I know how they, they live and operate. And it's just the fun of being able to make change by simply making soap and now increasingly food, I think is what many people drives, but ownership and the entitlements get in the way of that. And not too many other people are as crazy or committed as, as my bosses, but there's a growing number of companies that, for instance, think of not having them owned by their owners, but rather putting them into a trust or so where the owner is not entitled. So that's, it's, it's a slow movement, right? But it's, it's something I find hopeful because the other extreme large public companies, they, to me, just symbolize, and I feel sorry for any CEO of a large public company because they can't make real decisions. Because they always need to watch the attitude of the shareholders. And that's mostly related to the value of the company you know, the stock value. So that's, I think, what we do different. So it's a combination of a, of a couple of, of financial tools that we use and structures, plus just a very strong commitment to community service, which initially focused mostly on our staff and now has gone global. That's what happened the last 15 years since I've been involved, is that through going out and buying in tropical countries and elsewhere, um, and, and then supporting causes of, of, of global relevance, I would say. One, one being the, the concept of using psychedelics and, and, and psychedelics-assisted therapy to address severe 
mental issues, for instance, that uh, a good chunk of the world population suffers from. So that's a major campaign. And we as a small company are a major contributor and have been rather successful. And we just raise attention. There's minimum wage issues that we've been supporting in our projects, ourselves. We kick off campaigns. Some of it is schools and, you know, healthcare. But there's a, a great project we do in India, which is supporting women on menstrual hygiene issues, which in rural India is a real problem. So how to help women find cost-effective, non-taboo, ways to deal with their menstruation and to just do this in a way as if it was business, right? That, that's what I really like about it. You just look at these projects and see, can we do those? And then you look at their execution and it's not primarily about making the photos look good, but it's, a, it's about having an impact. So we're super impact driven and that's because we like these things to move along just like business would. So that's, I think that may give an idea as to how we, we operate. And it's not without problems, absolutely, right? You, you have operational issues, there's issues with staff, and there's whatever there is in normal companies. But the way we deal with this is more open. It focuses on communication and, and, and constructive engagement. And it's increasingly difficult as your companies grow, but that's one of the foundations of what we do as a company. And I think many companies could learn from that just a little bit. Yeah, thank you for, for walking us through that, Gero. And, and uh, I want to just mention really quickly, too, that folks can find out more and connect in with the Dr. Bronner's community uh, on social media, Dr. Bronner, that's on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And then uh, drbronner.com, of course, is the website. And it's, it's, it's so neat to hear your perspective of the, the Bronner family and their values and ethics and priorities. And I, I really enjoyed in the book, and I'll just show one more time the cover for our video audience, Honor Thy Label. Um, I really enjoyed how in the book you have these little uh, two, three page vignettes from different uh, contributors, including Trudy Bronner, David Bronner, Mike Bronner, and others. And um, it, it really fills out the, the experience of kind of getting the voices of others in, in the community and in the leadership of the organization. And, and one of the things that really touched me in, in the storytelling of the book, Garo, is the way in which you were able to help facilitate some, some really beautiful healing and reconnection with the Bronner family, which was uh, the Heil Bronner family, uh, originally in Germany, of, co of course, uh, it's a, a German Jewish family. And we know with the history of the Holocaust and, and all that has uh, happened um, several decades ago, that this opportunity for healing and, and reconnection had some real depth and importance to it. And I, I thought if it's uh, not too much to ask, I, I might ask you to just kind of walk us through that a little bit, kind of how uh, you were in this unique uh, position, being being of German origin, uh, to help uh, facilitate this process that occurred. This this isn't really an official part of my job description, and I, I fell into it, but I, I couldn't help it. Right, as a German, the issue of the Holocaust has weighed on me. I'm too young in a way, but I knew what had happened very early on because my father allowed me to read books 
about the Holocaust since I was nine or ten, right? So I had a I had a perspective on what happened, but I don't I didn't know a single Jew until I came to Los Angeles. But they just weren't too many in Germany, and they were somewhat secluded, and there was a we there was a taboo in a way to talk about it, right? There was guilt. And I, it always bothered me. And so we fell in Los Angeles. We fell into Jewish friends really easily. That's just what happens, right? You have Jewish friends at school. Many of your doctors are, are Jewish. Crystal works in art. And so I was super sensitive. And I, I learned a lot the first 10 years in Los Angeles just about the tragedy of the Holocaust from perspective I hadn't known. I had not known how much of the, the German soul actually we had, not me, right? Germany had killed or driven out of the country, which is what the smarter and more mobile Jews did early on. And then the Brauners were just one example of such a family where the parents of the company founder were killed in the, in the Holocaust. He himself was traumatized by that, which drove much of his engagement, you know, his idea to, to save the world through soap. And as soon as I started traveling with the Brauners and we were thinking of developing distribution in Germany, David asked me whether I could support. There were contacts that I could speak German and I was super motivated. So I started organizing trips to visit the two places the ancestry came from, that's Laupheim and Heilbronn, and both in southern Germany. And then just, just to dive into the story, right? And that just added a layer to me. I knew this all theoretically, but if you're confronted with the actual narrative of a family that has gone through this incredible horror starting in 33 and ending in 45, or not ending, whichever way, and so I, I became super in, engaged in organizing visits and then also made funny coincidental connections between people who knew the Heilbronner family from way back when. And now I found myself selling palm oil to that organization by, by complete coincidence. And that's been, been moving and motivating. And, and one of the, the latest climaxes is that we managed to buy the house where the the first production of the Heilbronner family of soap started in 1858. That house was on the market when we visited. So Mike Bronner and I gave a talk to the local middle school and then the house was available and we bought it. We're going to convert it and it's going to be a place where, where slightly handicapped people can live. We put a little museum in the, uh, in, in the basement where the production was, right? So this is a fantastic way of reconnecting with your history. And again, it's not just marketing. It's a great story for sure. But it's also about reconnecting and teaching younger Germans that we're a little different and that it's not just the, the grudge. There's no grudge against Germans and many don't know that, right? That most Germans who immigrated, they felt like Germans. It was just a brutal thing that happened. But the hatred towards Germany is not so much people that were affected themselves, German Jews. So all of these things I didn't know. Right? So this really in, enriched me too and gave me a very different perspective on, on the brutality of the Holocaust and how it affected Jews in Germany and also, of course, in, in neighboring countries. And 
it's been and and then looking of course at Dr. Bronner's archives, you know, with all the communication from Emmanuel Bronner and his letters to Albert Einstein, Richard Nixon, Eisenhower, and, and everybody else, right? So that was a particular treat. He was an artist in many respects, the way he designed his, his letters. And just to see that, you know, the, the craziness of a person that tries to single-handedly help overcome some of the ills of the, the planet, all that was really moving to me to see that and then to connect with the family of such a person. So it, it, it sure enriched my my job if I if I needed that. <clears throat> it's absolutely a tremendous, tremendous story. And uh, it, it was such a powerful part of, of the book to read. And I'm really happy you were able to share that story. Thanks. Yeah, for sure. Well, girl, it's been uh, so wonderful visiting with you. And, and before we sign off uh, with our episode here today, I, I just want to, you know, open the floors. Is, is there anything else you'd like to say or to share uh, before we conclude our interview? Well, you know, those who buy the, the, the book and make it all the way to the final chapter, I, I went off on a tangent there a little bit, and it's, it's about the question, can this scale? It's what we do, can this scale? Or is this just a, a, a tiny little blip on, on the map? and we are in a particularly good position. But I, I guess my conclusion has been, my, my observation is most people actually, by nature, are, are pretty good, right? As long as you let them, and power and greed doesn't get in the way too much. And there's some recent evidence on that, great books written on the, on the subject. And I, I believe, I'm, I'm super optimistic, is that our fundamental human condition would make us more prone to just have many Dr. Bronners or, or just do economy in, in a way that pays more attention to others as individuals and as a society. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little older now. And, and personally, I keep saying this, I do not believe we're going to be acting fast enough to entirely prevent climate change or stop it before I die. But I believe everything we're doing is valuable for many other reasons. And one is just doing it because it gives you meaning and purpose. And I think to make that a little more part of our action in business in particular is going to add a lot of fun too. I really enjoy my work and I enjoy working with other people. And it's not just about working with the same minded that can be pretty boring if the same-mindedness is, is poorly um, un understood. It's really more trying to figure out what am I good doing, what am I doing with my job, and what is it that I, I can do that I, I believe in and then act on it in a smart way in collaboration with others. That's ultimately the theme of, of this, this book, and I'm, I really hope that I can inspire people to just think about it and if they do get engaged in, in a company, to just consider that. And what Dr. Bronner's does is unique and not the same rules have to be implemented and you cannot buy all of your raw materials as rock certified. That's not going to work. But there's room in any company that does anything is to just be a little more open and respectful of the people you, you work with and then just see whether you make somewhat of a contribution. And if, if nothing changes in your lifetime and if we don't 
prevent the climate, global climate change, at least it's going to be much more satisfying for yourself and those around you, right? And that I think is just, a, you know, that, that's a value by itself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Carol, for visiting with me today. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Same, same here. Thanks very much for having me, Aaron. And I, I hope people got something out of this. Well, I'm, I'm sure they will. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Bye-bye, Aaron. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WHYONEARTH, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.